Um, Xerxes is the Handel opera with the emperor serenading, as you'll remember, a plane tree. Perhaps the single most popular of all of Handel's arias that when I was growing up was called quite simply Handel's Largo. Um, and my sister and I used to mishear it as Handel's Lager, which was somewhat unfortunate. Um, I now, of course, know, as all of us do in this room, it's Ombre Mafui. And I still think it's one of the most daring and I think the most exquisite openings of any opera ever written. It really does still take my breath away. The opera itself was first performed in London on the 15th of April, 1738. It's set in Persia in 480 BCE, uh, before the Christian era, and is very loosely based on the life of Xerxes I, emperor of the Persians. Very loosely, because, of course, this is a Baroque opera and not a history lesson. Though, perhaps, there are in this piece, and we perhaps discover this this evening, lessons on how, if not to, uh, Xerxes, but certainly Baroque rulers ought to behave. This was one of the last operas that Handel wrote for the London opera scene, on which he'd been a central figure for some 27 years. And his adopted city had changed enormously in the time that he'd been here. It was becoming the seat of an empire, it was growing in size, and it was growing in prosperity too. And it wanted to be entertained, not only in the opera house, but also in a relatively new phenomenon, the pleasure gardens that would become such an important feature of 18th century London life. Uh, so, the struggle between Xerxes and his brother, Arsemene, to win Romilda, the machinations of the wicked Atlanta, a mastery yearning for Xerxes, and Elviro, the comic servant, play out their story in the production we're going to see tonight in what looks like Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. And there, they're attended on by a chorus of visitors eager to see the sights of the gardens, including a celebrated statue of Handel by the great Augustan sculpture sculptor Rubiak, though the label at the bottom, as we shall discuss, says not Handel, but Timotheus. The first production of Xerxes was, I fear to tell you, a dismal failure. The ubiquitous Dr. Burney, who seems to have attended every first night for nearly half a century, berated the master. I have not been able to discover the author of the words of this drama, but it is one of the worst that Handel ever set to music. For besides feeble writing, there is a mixture of tragic comedy and buffoonery in it, which Apostola, Zeno and Metatasio would have banished from serious opera. Modern audiences, though, have thought much better of Xerxes or Circe, and certainly this production at English National Opera, which is celebrating its nearly 30th birthday. Well, we're joined tonight by a quartet of guests. Uh, Michael Walling has directed this revival here at English National Opera and other revivals of this production in the United States. Sarah Champion is here, who covers the role of Xerxes, and Martin Pacey, who is a member of English National Opera's music staff, and who I think he's... I'm not saying this one. Are you playing in the pit tonight? He's playing in the pit tonight, so we should be extra grateful that he's with us, and he will sneak off slightly before the end of our event in order to take up his other duties. And our first guest is a great scholar of Baroque music. It's the head of the department and senior lecturer in music at Goldsmiths College here in London, Dr. Berta Yonkers. Would you please welcome Berta Yonkers? Berta, are there obvious reasons why uh, Xerxes was not a success uh, that first night in 1738? Yes, um, well, if you can go by the... Shall I... Is that good? Is that, yeah. If you can go by the reports, uh, Lord Shaftesbury wrote to James Harris uh, in a letter and basically said the singing was indifferent. So the um, performers definitely let 
handled down. The other reason was, of course, that uh, it was a mixture, as you pointed out with the Bernie comment, a mixture of serious and comic. And uh, I know, just like this microphone, actually, <laughs> um, which keeps swinging around. Um, it, the, and it's this mixture, which you picked up probably from the vitriol and Bernie's, and Bernie's comment, that the audiences who were very, very concerned about appearing sophisticated were offended by. There's that element. But I wanted actually to kind of headline a little musical law and share with you a little discovery I made this week, um, which, adds that, which adds to that comment from Bernie as well, is that Handel quoted from John Gay's Beggar's Opera in his opening scene. And I, to my knowledge, no musicologist has actually picked this up. It's the aria vagodendo, which is a kind of reworking of the, of the air by Polly. It's called Cease Your Funning, which is exactly the point at which Polly and Lucy in the Beggar's Opera start to lock horns over the lover McKeith. So what really he was doing was setting up that drama by quoting from the Beggar's Opera, which was the end, of course, the only real musical quotation I think that Handel could be guaranteed that the audiences would pick up. But is there also a dramatic point here in what he's doing is, is establishing a sense of, of the, the, a present tense for, for Xerxes by quoting an opera that, in a sense, is seen as part of the present tense of the 18th century. Oh, yes. He is actually forging ahead in, in a very interesting way. He's returning to 17th century Venetian opera, which mixed together comedy and tragedy to create something new in the 18th century and really look ahead using the music then to drive forward the narrative in exactly the way composers after him would do. And had nobody really seen this before? I mean, had the English audience acquired uh, a taste for straightforward opera seria without any comedy, without characters like Elviro? Well, I would say pretty much, yes. I mean, the, this, um, this refor so-called reform operas by Metastasio and Zeno had really held the theatre at, at the King's Theatre. Um, they may have been exposed to, uh, you know, corollaries, actually, in English playhouse productions, but not in Italian opera itself in the last 20 years. Do we know the extent to which Handel shaped the writing of the arias around the singers that were available? I mean, for example, Caffarelli, uh, who takes the title role, uh, Gaetano Majorano, the castrato. Do we know that Handel shapes it around what Caffarelli's gifts were? Oh, I think this is self-evident from the score. I mean, Caffarelli was known to be the great virtuoso which, uh, who could do actually any kinds of diminutions, any kinds of runs, and of course those fantastic leaps, um, and could whip up the tempos within this kind of virtuosic display. And what you, what you will hear and see is a kind of crescendo, if you don't mind me using the word, of the virtuosity throughout the piece. So it starts off quite simple with Ombre Maifu, uh, with, this with this fantastically beautiful, but beautiful in its simplicity, which in itself, of course, is hard to deliver. But then, of course, it gets just more and more difficult and shows a greater and greater display of effective colors as we go forward. Is there something, too, that puzzles the audience about the aria structure in the opera? 
Yeah, well, this was the direct result of taking a 17th century libretto from Venice, which where they did actually mix characters, um, and it had been adapted for Rome um, by Bononcini, and the librettist was called Stampiglia, um, and they had actually made it more modern for 1694 by bringing in da capo arias. But then, interestingly, those da capo arias were stripped out of the version that Handel used. We don't know who the adapter was of the libretto, and there's even the sense that maybe Handel had a hand in actually restructuring the libretto for his own musical purposes, because the end, the end effect of that was, was, as I said, to creates kind of forward moving drama in which the music tells a story rather than the stop and start that you would be used to in a kind of normal operasaria with its string of da capo arias. So we have a, a more, as it were, one act operas or one, one, one movement operas than the normal three movement. Now you think perhaps that this is Handel actually stretching the form. This is Handel moving on ahead, trying to rethink the form of opera. Very much so. I mean, I think even the introduction of the three choruses, which is entirely his insertion, there was no indication in the, in the word book that they should be choruses, um, th you know, that he is bringing in actually uh, clearly English forms that he thought might play well. The other thing I'd like to draw attention to is the Dragon of Wantley. Okay. Now, the Dragon of Wantley had just launched in May 1737 and was even more popular than the Beggar's Opera. And what was the Dragon of Wantley? The Dragon of Wantley was like a Monty Python spoof of the entire operasaria form of operasaria, the genre itself. And it, you can actually, I think, read this opera, Xerxes, as, an, as a spoof of the genre because of the ridiculousness, as it were, of the exalted feelings and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the kind of crazy kinds of lines that you hear, particularly Xerxes singing. Do you think there was something particular about the history of Xerxes um, when Handel was looking for a libretto or looking for someone who would adapt a libretto that, that, that touched something in Handel? I mean, is there something about this particular history that interests him? I don't know if the actual history itself does, but I think the characterization does. Um, to get back to Caffarelli, the, uh, it's not just the music that's suited to that, to, to that voice, but Caffarelli was the biggest diva, <laughs> male diva of his time. He was imprisoned and held under house arrest for being obscene on stage, for talking and mocking, talking with the audience to make fun of his colleagues on stage. He had to run away from France because he nearly killed somebody in a duel. This guy was completely out of control. And I think, in a way, knowing probably who the singers were at his disposal, that drew Handel, if it was indeed he who made the choice of libretto, because we don't know, we don't know who made that choice, um, but I think actually that characterization could have just, you know, attracted Handel in a way to think, yeah, that's it, this is, there's so many, there's so many things I can do with this, with this story. It's also tempting to wonder if there isn't a political, a direct political element here. This is a period in which uh, George II um, is in, as all the Hanoverian kings seem to be, a, a dispute with his son and heir, the Prince of Wales. Um, and the opera perhaps becomes, in a way, a kind of little moral laying out of the proper appropriate response of what a, a monarch should be. 
Oh, very much so. And the wonderful thing about 18th century opera is that it was intended to be read in so many different ways. So that you could read it as um, a comment on Caffarelli. You could read it as a comment on an ill-tempered monarch. And King George II, of course, was absolutely renowned for his furious temper. He used to kick his wig around, take it off and kick it around when he got angry. And this, this was a well-known fact. And his wife, Queen Caroline, who had a kind of a restraining influence on him, she had just died. So there could have actually been a real concern about um, a kind of out-of-control King George II, as well as, of course, there was rising opposition at the time. So if you wanted to read it as a criticism, criticism of King George II, that would have been very attractive to those members of the audience who were sitting in the opposition. Why should this opera have become, uh, after a period of, of, of disappearance really, so hugely popular in our own time? I mean, I don't suppose it's now the most popular of Handel's operas to be revived, but it's certainly up there amongst the top five, the, the, and I wonder why you think that is. Well. I think it's because it's so original. It really is a one-off, both in Handel's output, but really in English, uh, in the Italian operas that were put on in the London stage at that time. I think because it anticipates these different forms, you have choruses, but above all, it's the flow of the drama that we're used to now seeing in all kinds of theatrical entertainment that's post-19th century. He really anticipated that in his structures and the way the music drives us forward into the drama. You just sit on your seat wanting to know what's going to happen next. Bertha Yonkers, thank you very much and stay with us. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you can see images from the production on the screen just to my left and these are images from the production we're actually going to see uh, on stage tonight. Well, we're joined now by Sarah Champion who covers the role of Xerxes and by Martin Pacey who, as I've said, is a member of English National Opera's music staff and who will indeed be playing in the pit this evening. Would you please welcome Sarah Champion and Martin Pacey. <laughs> Sarah, you're going to sing uh, one of Xerxes' arias for us. Tell us before you sing a little bit about what you're going to sing. Right, so we've decided to perform uh, an aria from the second act, um, which uh, in English translation is, if you would worship the man who has spurned you, I'd renounce you. Um, and um, in this aria, uh, Xerxes has just um, presented Romilda, the woman he's in love with, with um, some, what he thinks is real, but is in fact false evidence that um, her lover has been unfaithful and, uh, and asks Romilda, well, what, what will you do? And, and, and Romilda says, I'll, I'll love him forever. And uh, Xerxes gets quite upset at this, um, but then interrupts himself saying, um, I, 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 but I can't be angry at you because I uh, love you too much. And this is a pretty fast aria, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We shall have worked it. Thank you. 
Sarah, Martin, thank you both very much. Martin, we must let you go so you can get on with your, as you might say, your day job. Thank you very much, <laughs> Martin, indeed. Um, Sarah, is Xerxes all monster? I mean, is this, is this man, I mean, he's pretty dreadful in what we've just heard. Yeah, it's, it's funny you should ask that. Um, I, uh, I must admit, I struggled with the character when I was learning it. Um, he, I found it very difficult to get in touch with him as a, a woman and a feminist. <laughs> um, I don't think he's a monster, though. I think he's used to getting what he wants. He just, not just that he's used to it, I think he's never experienced anything else. And suddenly he's presented with um, this, this woman who he falls head over heels in love with at first sight, and, and he can't have her because she's in love with his brother, and, and he just... It's, he can't fathom that. He's never experienced it before, and I think it turns him into a bit of a monster. Yeah. That's a, a, a wonderful thought. Does he really love her? I mean, in the sense, does he want her because he can't have her? Of course, it's not the same as loving somebody. I think, I think he probably wants her more once he knows he can't have her. Um, which I think story, we see yes. sort of in, 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 the, you know, in the first few scenes. He, he sees her and, and is, is immediately kind of enthralled, but then I think as soon as he, he finds out that perhaps it's going to be more difficult, that does make her more enticing. You said you had difficulty finding your way into the character. Um, how did you do it eventually? I mean, what, what were the kind of ways you found yourself being able to stand in his shoes? Um, I think trying to identify where he's coming from and, and what drives him and what... I think it's something with any character you're trying to portray, you have to find out what they're after, what they want. And if you can find out, if you can figure out what that is, then it's easier to, to get into the, into the character and, and sort of use that as your motivation for how they might behave in a way that is completely opposite to how you might behave as a real person in the real world. <laughs> and, and do you think by the end of the opera that we like him more, or at least we understand him better uh, and, and, and prepared to make, as they say, allowances? I think he has moments of likability. Um, <laughs> um, I, think, I think you see, uh, especially in, in the, the, the second act, um, when he is talking about the, the heart that, that love has captured um, and, and uh, sympathizing with Atalanta, who also is suffering from unrequited love. So I think you see 
definite moments of him being an okay guy, or at least trying to, you know, come to terms with, with all these things. I think he's also very young. I get the feeling that he's, he's a bit immature and, and, and adolescent, and, and um, I think he's sort of finding his way in the world, perhaps, a little bit. Bertrand and I were talk talking, of course, about Caffarelli, who created the pub. We were also looking back at the politics of the middle of the 18th century and the impossible George II kicking his wig around in bad temper. Um, is it important for you as a singer when you're thinking about a role in a Handel opera to go back to the period, to think about the 18th century, the singers, the traditions, the conventions? Yes and no. <laughs> um, yes, I think it definitely informs the, the style. Um, I personally try not to get too hung up in, um, in, in uh, going into too much historical detail because I don't want that to affect my performance in terms of the in interpretation of the, the character and getting in touch with the character and the music. So I think there's a bit of both. Yes, the, there's... It, I think it has to be informed, um, but without becoming sort of neurotic about it, if that makes sense. In other words, you've got to be someone in the 21st century as a starting yeah, point. Yeah, I think, and I think it has to come... I mean, it's inevitable that it is going to come from my experience as a 21st century human being, so... Um, what, are, what are the vocal challenges of the role? It's pretty, pretty long. <laughs> there are a lot of notes <laughs> to learn. Um, I think it's the, definitely the biggest role I've ever learned. Um, there just a, a lot of uh, 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 woodshedding. I don't know if you use that term here. Um, but, uh, just uh, uh, learning a lot of notes and, um, and, and just thinking about it. I mean, it's, it's almost four hours long, just uh, sort of trying to, learning to, to pace yourself as well within that. And in terms of learning the role, presumably it's something you take at a different pace than you would if you were singing uh, a shorter piece, but something outside the Baroque tradition. It has to be learnt in a particular way. Um, well, I, I sing quite a lot of Handel, um, so I feel quite at home in it. And so in a way, I find Handel easier to learn than other things because, um, because I feel like it, it, um, I know him quite well <laughs> um, as a singer. Um, but I think it all, I mean, learning any role, you sort of start at the same place. You, you want to know what the story is and you want to figure out who the characters are before you even start learning the notes. And, and if it's, I mean, it's quite nice when it's in an English translation because that eliminates a whole um, bit of work that you have to do trying to figure out what everything, what all the words mean. Um, but I think I, I probably approach it in the same way that I approach any other role, just starting with the story. People often talk about there being a kind of Handel style, the way you have to sing this music, mm -hmm. um, to do with ornamentation and so forth. Is, is that true? Or is this, again, a set of personal choices, a set of choices made within a production between you and the conductor uh, and the director? Um, there is definitely a style, and I think it is um, interpreted differently by different people and in different productions, and it depends on who you ask. Um, and um, I think you could you know, listen to 10 different productions of Xerxes and, and feel that there was a different style in each one. And I think each singer brings their own style. Um, and I think this is, comes back to what I was saying about being sort of in, informed about um, the, the performance practice of the time. 
one can be very informed about the performance practice of the time, but it's inevitable that, that our experience as a 21st century musician is going to, to come and, and sort of leak into that. So, I mean, if you listen to people singing Handel in, in recordings from 20 years ago, it's going to be quite different from, from what you hear today. So. So, so, in a sense, what our sense of a performance style should never become a straitjacket. It's a starting point, um, a, a, a signpost on the road, but not, yeah. not, 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 not the destination. So. Yeah. Great. Yes. Thank you very much indeed. Stay with, stay with us, please. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> our last guest is Michael Walling, who is the director responsible for reviving this particular production. Would you please welcome Michael Walling? Michael, how many times have you worked on this particular production? Six. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I was assistant director in... I'm going to take this out so I can look at you at the same time as I look at them. Um, I was assistant director in 1998 when the production was already quite old. And uh, I've revived it. This is now the fifth time. So I know it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> just to help us, what... what if you are the director responsible for reviving a production, um, what do you have to work on? What's the kind of, I mean, is there a, a, a kind of Stanislavskian master book of the production that you, you take from the shelf and open and it, all the instructions are there? What do you have to begin with? Well, yeah, there are many schools of thought about this. Um, there is something called the book and the assistant director is meant to keep it beautiful. Um, and I have to say, for the last three times I've revived it, I've never even opened it. Um, it seems to me that, um, because all that's in it is um, this person moves over here and that person moves over there. That is the way to kill a production, is to revive it in that way. What a production really is, in terms uh, you know, an original production, is like another layer of framework. It's another bit of text. So you, you have these layerings that, you know, the opera started with the libretto, Handel came in and wrote some music. A few hundred years later, Nicholas Heitner did a production framing. And then my job is, is, is the next layer, which is what you would do with any show, which is you bring uh, those layers of text and uh, the particular performers at the particular moment together. And it's that fusion at a particular moment in time which makes the liveness of the performance happen. So I think the last thing you should do is go back and find out what they did 30 years ago. Because the world has moved on, and really what Anne Murray's little finger did in 1985 is of no interest to me. And I don't think it's of much interest to Alice Coote either. What actually happens then in the rehearsal room? I mean, are you as lucky as, say, if, if it was a, a brand new production to have a kind of blank space in which you're going to make this opera with the singers, or are there things that have to be dealt with? Well, I mean, it's not a blank space, and, you know, because of that, that layer, which is called, you know, which is what people think a production is, a lot of which is the design, actually. So we don't come into an empty room. We come into a room which has a carpet in it, and you know, the carpet is green, and the stage management standing in the corners going, OK, you're going to enter now. Uh, and the chorus staging is, 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 is the same, um, because some of them still are the same people who did it 30 years ago. <laughs> and, and now they really are grey, you know? <laughs> so, so, yes, of course, there's, um, there are certain kind of points that stay the same. And there are, you know, the great coup de théâtre, which everyone knows the production by, 
uh, like you know the, the hedge clipper who pops over and uh, that, which has become a kind of national institution, although it was over in, only intended to be a, a quick gag in the mm. first place. And those things you keep. Mm. Um, but I, I think the key is finding a balance between what people think the production is and something which is much freer and will therefore be alive in the moment. Um, I said to the cast on the first day that actually right the way through the text, uh, there's this word libertà, or freedom. Uh, it's constant in the Italian, and it's there pretty much all the time as well in the English. And uh, if the piece is about freedom, then maybe we should be allowed to be quite free as we remake it, because the freedom sort of is the point. I want to pick up in a moment this idea of freedom in the production, but, but before we get there, does it help uh, to talk to Nicholas Heiner? Does it help to, 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 yeah. to you know, say, can we do, what do you do? You know, other conversations that can usefully inform the process? Well, I, uh, the first time I revived it, um, which was 2002, uh, I sat down and had a, a, a chat with him, and he said some really, really useful things, the first of which was do what you want. <laughs> the, uh, the second was, I don't think revival should happen anyway. I think everyone should just chop it up and throw it in the bin. Uh, what, what he actually meant was that theatre has to happen in the moment when it is performed. Uh, and that uh, the, the sort of slavish revival, which, which some people like to do, um, doesn't make sense to him and didn't make sense to me. And then we talked more generally about um, characterization about the ideas that had led him to do the production as he did and then he patted me on the head and sent me off to, to do it my own way which I've been doing since but you know he emailed the other night after the um, after the performance and he, he thought it was all right <laughs> um, liberty libertà um, in a sense one way of reading this word in the context of the opera is of course ironically that, that these, these characters yearn for liberty but liberty is utterly impossible given the political situation that they find themselves in is that the way to read it? it's not what I read um, I mean I think you know, it, it, it is about a kind of antithesis between liberty and uh, and and tyranny um, and you know t the the word which is constantly used of Xerxes and then later on in the opera by Romilda of love is that uh, these things are, are tyrannical and that tyranny is, a, is this kind of intense structure which holds on to people and freedom is is, is desire uh, and uh, I think the the piece swings around uh, a kind of conflict between very, very intense structure and the desire to break out of structure. Uh, and I think that's there in the text, and I think it's also there in the music. And it's really interesting that you've chosen to sing that particular aria from the middle, because that's the moment when the musical style changes completely, and it's the moment when the character changes completely. And um, he stops being someone interested in the structure of love, someone who is performing himself as a lover and trying to invent himself as a lover, and he goes into a much more released, real world of desire. And like you said, it's because that's the moment when Romilda has rejected him, that then he says, yes, now I understand love, because it, it's to do with finding a vulnerability in himself which he didn't know was there. 
in a way, the context in which this happens is one in which we're invited to think about pleasure. It's set in a kind of version of the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. And I mean, we have very clear ideas of what we think pleasure is now, but quite clearly the 18th century had a different idea. And I wonder what you thought the, the, the Vauxhall Pleasure Garden means in terms of offering these people, these characters in the opera, but the 18th century too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you, you cite it as being about uh, pleasure in that way, because um, the, 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 the chorus, as they drift through the Vauxhall Pleasure Garden, look as if everything's very, very intensely serious, and they're reading off these bits of paper, and um, everything's sort of catalogued, and they're being told how to enjoy themselves. Um, I, I think it's, um, it's kind of less uh, a pleasure dome and, and more of a museum. Um, and you said earlier that you know, England in the mid-18th century was beginning to become an empire, and I think that's very, very important, that this is the age of the great collectors. And so young men are going out around Europe on the grand tour, and other people are going out into the world and starting to collect countries, and they're collecting artifacts and, and habits like tea drinking and coffee drinking, and they're bringing things back, and they're starting to make museums. And the, the big winged god, which we have in the, in the design, is a, an Assyrian artifact, which is actually in the British Museum. And, and I think when the production was first done in 1985, in a sense, the museum was important because it was actually about defining the canon, which is the other form of, of um, museum, a museum of music. Uh, and I think the statement w was being made was one about the Englishness of Handel and bringing Handel into an English canon in the English National Opera in the third centenary of his birth. Um, it doesn't mean that anymore, of course, because um, we're not in the third centenary of his birth and Handel has absolutely been accepted as part of the canon. But at the time, it was a radical statement that there was this gap to be plugged between Purcell and Britain and we were going to rediscover Handel as an English composer, and hence the very, very English nature of the production. The, the other idea that attached itself perhaps to the museum, and indeed this version of the Pleasure Gardens, is essentially that of the Enlightenment, that it's somehow rationally possible not only to collect the world, but to arrange it in suitable order and taxonomies, and therefore to fully understand it. And there's a tension, therefore, between the chorus, who are trying to, as it were, exercise their obvious intelligence as members of the Enlightenment, and indeed the wild emotions that are swirling through the principal characters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we should see that in, in, in the way you see the, the show. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think they, they, they go mad. Um, and the, the central bit, again, this, the, the bit that you've just sung, and all around it, there's a series of mad scenes, um, which we stage in the cactus house, so everything gets very prickly. And, and they're, all, they're all under attack. Uh, and you know, after that mad scene of Xerxes, Romilda has her mad scene where the tyrant love is attacking her. A masteress has her mad scene where she almost kills herself, and, and Arsimenes loses the plot as well. Um, the four mad arias, one after the other. The, the, the center of the opera is about a complete turmoil, and then Act Three is about trying to emerge from the other side. As you worked on this opera for a large proportion of your life, in terms of the, the years. God, really? Well, well, in terms of the number. I, I wonder whether you've changed your view about the principal character, about Xerxes, whether in a way he's begun to develop and change and move each time you've returned to him? Well, what actually happens is each time I return to him, he is another woman. 
and, <laughs> uh, and, and that's what is different. Um, and I, as a director, I have to work with the singer. Uh, there's no point coming in and saying the character is like this. Um, Alice Coote's Xerxes is very, very different from Susan Graham's Xerxes, which was the, the previous one I did, and in turn very different from Sarah Connolly's, because these are different performing personalities. And they are working with other singers who are also different, and, and the conductor who is different. And, and really, the music has moved on so enormously, even in the time I've been working on this production. And our knowledge of Handel has deepened. And what you said about the Beggar's Opera, I am going to take away and use, because it's perfect. <laughs> I had no idea that it was a quote, but it, it works dramatically, so interestingly. Um, so it just keeps changing all the time because of the specific circumstances you're in. And that's to do with the liveness and the immediacy. Uh, and you know, performers are... Uh, they're very exposed. They bring themselves into the room and how they perform the music is absolutely about themselves. And so the character is a very malleable thing. It's, it's a blend of your own personality and what is written. In, in the middle of many of the scenes, there is that celebrated statue, as I've said, by Rubiak of Handel. Um, possibly the first ever great statue of a living composer, uh, maybe. But, but at the bottom, it doesn't say G.F. Handel. It says Timotheus. Now, what's all that about? Three years, it is three years, isn't it, before Handel wrote Xerxes, he had said a poem by Dryden. Uh, and the poem was about Timotheus, who was the musician of Alexander the Great. And Alexander um, was conquering the world and took Timotheus with him. And Timotheus played one night in Persepolis, uh, which is the little thing you see in the desert at the back of the stage. Uh, and the morning after Timotheus had played, Alexander the Great raised the palace of Xerxes to the ground. And so what it's saying is that here in this pleasure garden, here in this uh, apparent seat of power, there is already the seed of its own destruction. And that's really important because it's actually, well, you, you were talking earlier about the balance between the comedy and the tragedy. And I think over the time I've worked with it, I've felt more and more the darkness of the piece. And I think it's really interesting because the Daily Express in its five-star review said, oh, it's all really silly and stupid. And I was really sad about that five-star review because it's wrong. It's a very, very dark piece, and I think this is, this is the darkest it's been. doesn't mean it's not funny. Actually, I think it's probably more funny as a result of the darkness because it becomes very humane and very true. Um, but it's what's really fascinating about it. It's like Shakespearean comedy where you get this incredible artifice, and through the artifice, and that probably only through extreme artifice, can you penetrate right to the heart of the purity of human emotion. And that's what the music does. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand. Um, and we have the roving microphone. We have time, I think, possibly for one or two questions. If you'd like to ask a question, do please put your hand up and we'll get the microphone to you. Would anyone like to ask any of our guests a question? Yes, over there. Uh, just well, just wait for the microphone, if you would, then we can hear. Thank you. Saying how, um, diff how much you work with your new lead each time. I'm just wondering how easy is that for the understudy to fit in with when she comes, <laughs> if she ever comes to. 
do the role on stage. It's very interesting. Um, I think I had this conversation with my husband, actually. <laughs> um, uh, I think as, as a cover, what you have to um, do is not try and become the other person, but be the character and go after what the character wants um, and what the character is feeling through your own experience. So, you know, were I to, to go on in the place of Alice on one particular evening, um, it wouldn't be the same. The music would be the same, but uh, I think, you know, the character would, would come out differently in me um, because I think we all experience things differently. Does that make it difficult for other members of the cast? It must, in a way, obviously. Well, they're but all pros. <laughs> I wonder how I much think... rehearsal do you, as a stand-in, do you have rehearsals with... Uh, with other with the other covers, the yes. So we've we've, we've only we've, the covers. Yeah, we've rehearsed yeah. and we've run the entire opera with the the cover cast. Um, so you know, I'm quite used to them, and the principals, of course, are are quite used to each other. Um, so it would be it would be a different dynamic. But um, I think what you were saying about you know being live, alive, and in the moment, it would be very, very much in the moment because I would be giving them something that that wouldn't necessarily be exactly what they were used to hearing, and I think that. I think when you see a performance, when an understudy steps in, there's a certain excitement. And I think, especially if it's in a long run of performances, everybody sort of tunes in and pays perhaps a little more attention than they might do on you know, the fifth or sixth performance otherwise. Do we have one more question? I think we have time just for one more question. Anybody like to ask a final question? Just there, the last question, sir. It's director. Um, Obviously, on long runs, um, the actual uh, performance will um, change throughout. Um, how does that sort of make you feel as, as a director of the piece? And uh, how much do the performers actually influence that, that change as it goes along? Um, the great director, Joan Littlewood, um, was once asked pretty much that question. Um, she was getting on a plane to New York because the hostage had been running there for six months and she went, wanted to go out and visit it. And someone said, oh, you're going to make sure they're all doing the same thing. She said, no, I'm going to make sure they're not doing the same thing. Uh, it, it's got to change, otherwise it's not alive. Um, it's just got to keep growing. So um, if I come back in a couple of weeks' time and they're all doing the same thing, I will go around the dressing rooms and tell them to stop. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you, as always, for being thoughtful, attentive. Uh, but I think a special thank you to our guests for extraordinary thoughtful introduction to what is going to be, I think, an even more remarkable evening now that we've shared with them some sense of, of the piece we're going to hear together. So a large thank you on your behalf to Michael Walling, Berta Jonkers, and Sarah Champion, and to Martin Pace. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs> <laughs>